welcome to this episode of Declarations, the human rights podcast run out of the Center of Governance and Human Rights here at the University of Cambridge. My name is Matt Mahmoudi, and I'll be your host on today's show. I'm joined by our regular panelists, Talia Zibitz, Max Curtis, and Scott Novak. Economics is often seen as the antithesis of human rights. Today's guest believes otherwise. We're joined by international best-selling author, Dr. Ha-Joon Chang. Dr. Chang is a Cambridge economist and the director of the Cambridge Center of Development Studies. He's the author of 23 Things They Don't Tell You About Capitalism, Economics, The User's Guide, and Bad Samaritans. And most importantly, he's my academic supervisor. Before we start, it would be interesting to hear your thoughts on how you think human rights intersect with economics, whether the state has an obligation to provide certain goods and services to all individuals, or in a nutshell, do we have socioeconomic rights? Mm. Well, intersection between human rights and economics at the practical level, of course, uh, you have a division of labor between economists and human rights lawyers or human rights campaigners, political scientists are studying human rights. But, you know, at the conceptual level, I actually object to the very notion that there's a division between human rights and economics, because, you know, the prevailing view at the moment is that there's this separate sacrosanct domain called the economy in which uh, the logic of the market should prevail. And yes, uh, then uh, we have this uh, secondary things like human rights, yeah, which might, I mean, affect what you do in the economy a little bit, but it should never be allowed to significantly affect uh, what's uh, going on in the economy. I, I totally object to that because uh, my uh, view is that, uh, you know, all markets, uh, all economies, uh, that they are based on certain notions of uh, what are the fundamental rights and obligations of uh, individuals uh, that belong to that society. And uh, therefore, I mean, uh, the distinction between, say, property rights and human rights or economic rights and human rights, these are all political distinctions. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And actually, that it makes it easier to ignore certain things if you can say that oh, those are political things. but. Economic things are uh, they are uh, scientifically determined, and we shouldn't touch them. Okay, we'll uh, throw some crumbs at the human rights uh, the campaigners, but uh, basically that that you they are not touch that that uh, what we are doing here. Huh? Okay. So uh, I think actually that I mean of course uh, once again I'm not saying that that uh, in pragmatic spheres I mean the distinction is uh, meaningless, but at the conceptual level I think it's uh, very important to recognize that uh, human rights are actually the foundations of the economy. Eh? Mm. It's uh, exactly because uh, that, that I have human rights uh, not to be someone's chattel as a slave. Yeah? It's that uh, because I have uh, some human rights that, uh, to have clean water that uh, you know, the economy can exist uh, as uh, it does uh, at the moment. And uh, trying to somehow artificially separate these uh, the two spheres, I think, is uh, the, actually the worst thing you can do in the service of human rights. In light of that response, why do you, or in light of your mm-hmm. conception of how human rights are tied to the economy, mm-hmm. why do you think then that, at least I rarely hear talk of human rights connected to, say, financial institutions mm-hmm. or financial crises, where these are treated as these like almost abstract political concepts instead of things that affect people every day. That's Elizabeth right. Warren yeah. has this great example mm-hmm. in her book, The Fighting Ch- A Fighting Chance, mm-hmm. that 
so take toasters for example. She uses this toaster analogy of if you had toast toasters used to explode, set people's houses on fire, and eventually the U.S. regulated toasters so that that doesn't happen anymore. And if a company was caught selling toasters that were going to explode on people mm-hmm. and they knew this, then that would be illegal and that would also be a human rights violation. Yeah. So then when we had financial companies in 2008 yeah. giving loans to mm-hmm. people that they knew were going to explode on people, right, yeah. we haven't really talked about that yes, in terms uh, of a human rights mm-hmm. crisis. Well, unfortunately, you know, the, we still have this, uh, if you like, uh, pre-modern notion of crime. You know, crime is something that you physically commit. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So you hit someone, you take uh, the, something away from someone's house. But if you do it uh, kind of long distance, it's not uh, okay. Yeah. <laughs> you can ruin people's lives by uh, selling them financial products that, that you knew were going to explode. You can that that uh, ruin the people's life by the uh, in, in the kind of secondhand way, uh, the, by creating unemployment, yeah, because that mm-hmm. uh, you messed up uh, your the management of your financial company. These people take no responsibilities. Yeah? So I think it uh, is uh, very important to uh, recognize that the uh, rights that uh, should be kind of redefined in this modern age uh, to include everything that ultimately affect people that even if you are not physically involved in hurting someone. So um, you've been a pretty vocal critic of the sort of prevailing economic system we have now, mm. usually called neoliberalism. Yeah. Um, to what extent do you think that's been a system that defines how we think of human rights? Like, for instance, the idea that we are all individuals separate from each other with no real community. Yeah. Yes, uh, neoliberal thinking uh, and, and especially the uh, individualist view of the society has had a rather toxic effect on the, how we think about the human rights. Because uh, the notion is that, yes, uh, insofar as uh, you don't actively harm someone else, that uh, you are free to do, you can do anything uh, that you like. And also that there's this uh, notion that somehow property rights are uh, the right to own and use and dispose of uh, the certain properties in the way you find most uh, profitable. Property rights are somehow considered uh, more important than human rights and other uh, rights. And this thinking has uh, really undermined the way that uh, we have uh, actually in the last uh, couple of centuries uh, advanced uh, the human rights because, you know, of course, in the you know, the pre-modern times when the, some people were actually slaves, some people were serfs uh, tied to certain pieces of land. I mean, uh, there was no point in really talking about human rights, but even after people acquired uh, the formal freedom and uh, in most cases, uh, the, the right to own themselves, uh, so to speak, yeah? that mm-hmm. uh, you have the right not to be a slave to someone. Uh, even after that, uh, there has been constant uh, struggle over, you know, the, what are the basic rights that uh, everyone should uh, be given and uh, how society should uh, defend them and so on. And, you know, that uh, throughout the history of capitalism until a few decades ago, we have uh, made uh, great advances, you know, so that we have, uh, the, in the beginning had a system where People had only formal rights, but no substantive rights. Over time, people have acquired, uh, for example, workers have acquired the right to organize uh, trade unions and uh, fight for their rights. Uh, the, the people have acquired right to the, the live in the clean and uh, healthy environment. And you know, some people who still were the slaves in the 19th century were liberated in the U.S., in Brazil. 
So uh, we have uh, made this uh, the progress. And uh, yeah, until the 60s and 70s, that uh, we that the progress was uh, really going in uh, well, in my view, the right direction because uh, we then acquired our you know basic rights uh, to you know have a minimum income and have healthcare and have a basic education and so on. But in the last few decades, I mean, of course, that these things have, but in many uh, places, are progress, but. We have uh, had that uh, enormous uh, that uh, kind of uh, resistance that, uh, against this uh, progress because now we are supposed to define everything in terms of uh, you know the, how profitable things are. We are that uh, uh, encouraged to see everything as a uh, commercial transactions. You know, I mean, these things that uh, of course that, that there's no kind of ministry of propaganda that. You know, that uh, brainwash people with these ideas, but uh, you know they seep into that uh, your thinking. So when Chicago economists uh, initially write that uh, these uh, papers, uh, especially Gary Becker saying, "Yeah, you can," you know, that, that explain crime and marriage and childbearing and everything, even the dating with uh, help of uh, economics, uh, cal- uh, economic calculation. Initially, people laugh. You know, what, what an absurd idea. But then uh, 30 years later, you know, that through books like Free Economics, uh, you take this uh, for granted. Yeah? So that now you are some kind of, uh, in, in business, business language, you are some kind of cost center. Yeah? <laughs> so you uh, decide uh, to invest in your human capital and yeah. increase your value. And then you go into the marriage market to <laughs> yeah, get the best partner who has uh, the, the best uh, the complementary skills that are with you. So that, you know, and, and then everything is that, uh, seen to, uh, supposed to be seen in that light. And once you uh, begin to do that, uh, the talk of, uh, human rights that uh, become rather, the, the unconvincing because, you know, the, in the end, everything has a price. In the end, everything can be bought and sold. So why are you making this fuss that you need right to clean water, healthcare, you know, if you don't have money, that, that you, you, Better uh, shut up, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> so more than just socioeconomic rights, you see the whole of the economy needing to kind of be reoriented around the human or reoriented around human rights. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. In the end, I mean, why that we have the economy is that, that to serve uh, human needs. Yeah. So mm-hmm. only when you provide that everyone with a decent you know, standard of living, you should then think of kind of uh, making this calculation to improve this, improve that. If you are not uh, even doing that, you know, that uh, what's the point? So carrying on from that very nicely, um, there's an exhausted debate on to what extent we should, uh, in the light of of aforementioned argument, leave the allocations of resources to the free market. Um, So obviously America is a prime case in which conservative Americans would argue things such as health insurance should be left to the market to provide in a competitive setting. But in your literature, you talk about that there's no such thing as a free market, and we've talked about how that's been distorted. Mm-hmm. So um, I wonder what that means uh, for health insurance in the current debate, and uh, whether you could uh, summarize some of your arguments for our listeners. Yes, uh, well, yeah, I, as I uh, said earlier, my view is that uh, you know there's no such thing as a free market because all markets are founded on certain acceptance of uh, fundamental rights and obligations of uh, different participants. So, uh, you know, I cannot just uh, turn up in a court of law and say, well, I want to be a lawyer. You know, I need to 
you know, to have uh, my qualification, you know, to, I cannot uh, say that, well, to, to, they used to, to buy and sell human beings. I want to do that, you know. So to, uh, every to, uh, economic transaction, the things that you think are totally driven by logic of uh, the price and profit and so on, they are all founded on certain notions of what can be bought and sold, who can buy and sell them. So, you know, two centuries ago, you know, a lot of uh, the people, the, well, most people, in fact, uh, the thought that, that, that hiring children to do adults' work was uh, no problem as far as that, that they were not forced to do it. Today, that, that this is uh, not even uh, a matter of debate. Yeah. So, you know, with changing notions of uh, what are the fundamental rights and obligations, the very shape of the market changes and therefore in the same market, different people see different degrees of freedom. Right? This is why I said uh, freedom of the market is uh, like beauty in the eyes of the beholder. Right? So if you believe that, that uh, people's right to make profit in whatever way they uh, find uh, profitable and their freedom of contract are more important than children's rights to have childhood and basic education, then, yeah, I mean, uh, why, why not uh, have child labor? You know, it's uh, efficient. You know, these children want to work. These people want to employ them. You know, that, that there shouldn't be any problem. Yeah? So uh, basically my view is that uh, the old market uh, relationships are based on certain, uh, you know, politically, socially, and culturally determined uh, sets of uh, rights and obligations. And therefore, you know, the, what uh, may be totally marketable in some country Maybe the, just uh, beyond any possibility of uh, being marketed in other countries. Yeah? Mm. So, for example, in countries like the USA, the, my own country, South Korea, you can buy and sell blood. Yeah, mm. poor people sell blood. Yeah? yeah, in other countries, it's unthinkable. You know, this is uh, that, that something that that, that, that you just uh, don't buy and sell. You know, mm. so like healthcare. You know, that uh, in America, the healthcare is that uh, basically privatized with uh, minimal social provision. And there are, yeah, a lot of people believe that uh, this is not part of your basic rights. You know, health is also like other commodities, you know. So if uh, that, uh, someone, I don't know, wants to the, buy a car instead of uh, going to a hospital, you know, that's uh, that, that person's right. Yeah? Other societies have different view. They say that you know, things like health and basic education, this uh, shouldn't be commodities. And everyone should have a right to some level of uh, that, uh, these things. And then... After that, yes, that uh, you you know the buy and sell whatever you want. But you know the, the most societies say that, that these are things that shouldn't be commodities. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And once you accept that, I mean, there's no problem. Yeah? So the, the debate on healthcare in America is that uh, less of a technical debate on what is more cost efficient, what is less cost efficient, is uh, more about what are the you know, fundamental rights uh, that that uh, the American societies are willing to accept as uh, foundations of uh, their society and the economy. You've spoken extensively about how we need to abandon the notion that the UK has a particularly generous welfare state, which is spinning out of control, quote unquote. You've also mentioned a few times that Denmark should appreciate that welfare state more. I remember meeting you at a talk earlier last year. Um, Mm -hmm. Can we afford the welfare state? Well, the, once again, you know, the, this question of affordability is uh, not entirely about uh, sort of economic calculation, is it? I mean, uh, can we afford not to breed? You know, I mean, there are certain things that, that you have to uh, 
do uh, if you want to survive. So, well, of course, uh, different uh, people have a uh, different view on whether the welfare state is uh, that necessary. But yes, I, I think uh, one problem with this uh, debate on welfare state is that it's uh, all kind of based on fake impressions rather than reality. Huh? So you, you read uh, newspapers like uh, Daily Mail in this country. I mean, you think that, uh, the, you know, most of uh, the money in the welfare system is stolen. Yeah. Mm. No, actually, the, the, you know, the objective statistics are, that shows that something like only 0.5% of welfare spending is uh, lost in the fraudulent claims. Mm. Yeah. No, I mean, of course, it's uh, 0.5% are uh, too many, but still, you know, it's not like 30% or the 40% that uh, most people think when you do the you know, opinion surveys, yeah? because uh, they only read these uh, the articles saying, wow, there are all these uh, clever poor people stealing money from uh, you, the taxpayer. Yeah? Anyway, so the uh, same with uh, the welfare state debate on the, in the UK, because, uh, you know, this country, yeah, uh, the welfare state was uh, first invented in Germany by Otto von Bismarck, but the UK is the country that, that uh, first uh, kind of uh, the, made a big stride in you know, uh, building universal welfare state. So these people, uh, people uh, in this country have this impression that, yeah, they have the biggest and the most generous welfare state. That may have been true in the 1940s and 50s, but not anymore. Eh? Mm. The UK spends about 21.5% uh, of uh, GDP on uh, social welfare, uh, broadly defined. The OECD average is uh, 21%. Eh? Mm. And the OECD these days uh, include a lot of uh, countries that you didn't call rich. Eh? Mm. So Mexico, Chile, Latvia, Estonia, which are much poorer and also population is much younger. So they don't have uh, so much need for care for old age, healthcare and so on. So they tend to have a much smaller welfare state. If you actually compare the UK with uh, comparable countries like, you know, France, Denmark, Finland, you know, uh, Belgium, Actually, it's that the welfare state is uh, the very small. You know, the the, the UK spends twenty one point five percent on the of GDP on welfare. I mean, France spends at thirty one point five percent. Finland spends uh, nearly thirty one percent. You know, Belgium and Denmark spend twenty nine percent. So actually, it ha has a very the small welfare state. Mm -hmm. And if you want to have a debate, yes, you can have a debate. Why not? But you have to have a debate based on objective facts, not some kind of folk memory from 70 years ago. So my question is, mm. if welfare isn't something that should be subject to affordability in this way, and if the UK welfare state is so small as you describe it, then why are voters coming out and voting against their own economic interest in this way? Mm -mm. And you spoke about in the 1970s how everything was moving in a direction you kind of like the look of, and then the Reagan revolution came, yep. and we see the dismantling of the New Deal era infrastructure. Why are people voting against mm. a welfare state that would benefit them? Yeah. Well, that, uh, first of all, that, uh, don't get me wrong. I mean, I'm not saying that uh, we should expand the welfare state without regard to affordability. You know, I mean, yes, uh, there is a, always a, a, a constraint on the, how much you can spend on different things. And you know, that debate that uh, can be had, that debate uh, should be had. 
resources are limited and there are contending claims, uh, you need to uh, have a uh, debate on exactly how you want to use it, uh, exactly how much you want to use uh, for different things. But even there, you know, there's a lot of uh, misunderstanding because, uh, for example, the people think uh, the U.S. Uh, doesn't spend very much on social welfare. It uh, actually does, I mean, because a lot of uh, there is a lot of private spending on what you'd spend on in the European countries with bigger welfare states. So the U.S. might have a welfare state that's uh, just under. 20% of GDP, but uh, if you add all this uh, private health insurance and so on, actually it is that uh, has the second highest uh, welfare spending in the world after France. Yeah? It's only that, that, that uh, in other countries, they pull resources and spend them together. Yeah. Whereas in America, you that, uh, spend on your own and this uh, that, uh, results in uh, a lot of uh, inefficiencies that the uh, U.S. healthcare is a good example. Mm. I mean, the country spends uh, like uh, 17% of GDP on healthcare because uh, there's a lot of uh, cost involved in insurance and uh, legal claims and also you know, the individual hostels have to buy the medicine, whereas uh, in you know, Denmark or the, the UK, the government buys, you know, I mean, that, uh, just imagine how, how much discount you'd get that uh, if you want to buy diabetes, uh, diabetes uh, drugs for 10 million people, you know. So that there, there is a lot of uh, inefficiency in the US uh, healthcare system. So the country that uh, spends about 70% of GDP on healthcare compared to other uh, comparable countries in Europe, that spend between nine and eleven percent mostly, but uh, the U.S. has the worst uh, health indicators. Eh? <laughs> so uh, you you have to uh, look at these uh, things carefully. But uh, as for your question, uh, why are the, the voters are voting against their own interests? Well, part of it is what uh, the Marxists used to call false consciousness. Eh? So the mm -hmm. people are constantly bombarded with uh, certain types of information and then they begin to believe them. Yeah? So that, 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 that's a part of it. But also another part is uh, that, that uh, people always uh, kind of, well, it's a uh, human nature. You, you always think uh, there is a much better world uh, on the other side of the fence. Yeah? So that uh, you go to Denmark and uh, people complain about the welfare state. And I was uh, at pains to tell them that you complain about your welfare state only because you haven't lived in a country without a proper welfare state. You know, the, go to South Korea. Yeah? Yeah. <laughs> South Korea that, that spends uh, only about 10% of GDP on welfare. And I mean, it was okay when we had uh, the rapid growth and a lot of uh, new jobs uh, created and uh, extended uh, family network uh, uh, supporting its members, but uh, the growth has slowed down. Traditionally extended family has uh, been disbanded. Now the people are literally on their own that uh, if something goes wrong with their life, you know, this is why we have by far the highest suicide rate in the world. You know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's uh, three times OECD average. Yeah? Can you imagine? Yeah? <laughs> Live in that uh, kind of society, you will uh, immediately appreciate uh, the Danish welfare state. Yeah? Do you think, in your travels to Denmark and other places, though, do you think it could be more than just, oh, you know, you always want what you don't have, what's on the other side mm -hmm. of the fence? What, what, um, going back to what Talia brought up, though, concerning the Reagan revolution, a lot of the rhetoric in that 
revolution, so to speak, against the welfare state um, has been tinged throughout the debate with racist rhetoric. Mm-hmm. Um, so, of course, Reagan yeah. had the example of the welfare queen, which yeah, was yeah. understood as Absolutely. the black single yeah. mom yeah. on cocaine, mm-hmm. you know. So and in other mm-hmm. countries, so to what extent do you think homogeneity or the perception mm-hmm. of national, a common national yeah. identity is essential yeah, yeah. in establishing the existence of a welfare yeah. state because now we are seeing other attacks That's regarding right. yeah. race and immigration yeah. in places mm-hmm. like Denmark. Very good, very good, yeah. No, I think uh, that uh, this definitely the, the, this uh, issue of otherness, yeah? Poor people tend to be of certain religious background or certain racial background, certain the, the kind of cultural background, and then the, you uh, immediately begin to label them, and then the, you say these are you know, bad people. Well, however, the, you know, one reason why this works so well in America was that the, the American welfare state is actually not a universal welfare state. You know? In Europe, in countries like Denmark, everyone pays high taxes, I mean, the VAT in Denmark is uh, 25%, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, everyone pays a lot of taxes, but everyone gets uh, something from the welfare state. Yeah? In the US, uh, because it's a uh, means tested and everything, the more well-to-do people only pay taxes and then they uh, get very little back. Whereas uh, the poor people pay relatively little tax and then they uh, get a lot more. So that, that this naturally creates that discontent uh, among the middle class people. You know, I mean, that, uh, I'm paying all these taxes. Where's the money? I mean, it's that uh, in those uh, poor areas. Yeah. Mm. Whereas that uh, in Denmark, you know, that people pay you know sixty uh, percent income tax, you know, twenty five percent BAT, but they also get a lot uh, back from the uh, the welfare state. So even though in proportional terms that uh, they are getting less they are getting quite a substantial amount and they are happy to accept it. Yeah? And so from what you're saying, they still perceive what they're getting back as coming from the government, which would make them more amenable to having these. That's right, yeah, because uh, it's uh, more of a kind of, uh, you know, the, uh, collective uh, purchasing scheme like, uh, I don't know, Groupon, yeah? Mm-hmm. So you are, you are pulling your money, getting things at a discount because uh, instead of buying your own private education insurance for your children, private health insurance for your family, private unemployment insurance for yourself, you are pulling the resources with tens of millions of other people and you can get this much cheaper. Mm. So if you begin to see like that, it's less of a problem that you, in proportional terms, pay a lot more than the poorer guy, that you get somewhat less uh, than uh, the poorer guy, yeah? mm-hmm. because uh, yeah. that, that you also benefit. Yeah? Yeah. But in the American system, in the Korean system, where it's uh, that, uh, overly targeted, it uh, immediately creates this uh, discontent uh, by the, the people who are more well-off, yeah? because uh, they are saying, I'm paying all these taxes, I get probably a tiny bit back, and then it all goes to some other people. Yeah? Mm-hmm. And that, that, that immediately that demonizes that, that the uh, recipients. And then it also that, that puts a stigma on those people because that, uh, it's, uh, I mean, who pays and who gets is uh, rather sharply divided in the, that kind of system. Whereas in the, the Denmark, in the, the, the France, you know, it's all mixed up. You know, I get that, that, uh, a lot of benefit. I pay a lot. 
it's not even clear whether I'm a net beneficiary or not. Yeah? Mm-hmm. So it uh, creates uh, less division. Although there is still an identity crisis in Denmark in the context of migrants and, and refugees uh, and to what extent they deserve. The yeah, of course, state. but uh, you know, I don't know about that, the specific case of Denmark, but in most countries, uh, including the UK, that uh, migrants are actually net contributors uh, to the welfare yeah, state because yeah. uh, they tend to be in employment, uh, they, they tend to be uh, younger and that, uh, don't uh, go to hostel uh, so much. Yeah. They tend to be that uh, more kind of entrepreneurial. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that uh, most studies uh, show that the uh, uh, migrants are actually net contributors uh, rather than the uh, beneficiaries uh, to the welfare state. So actually that uh, these people should be grateful that there are all these uh, the young people that are coming from thousands of miles away and are working at, uh, 13 hours a day to pay their taxes uh, to support the Danish or British welfare state. Unfortunately, that's uh, not how kind of populist politics works. Yeah? Mm-hmm. Because that, that if you want to slash the welfare state, the best way to kind of put it is uh, that is these other people who come and take the money. Yeah? That's right. that's it's uh, not even like uh, that it's our Kind of, uh, that uh, older people who need yeah, support uh, is uh, our unemployed uh, that uh, colleagues uh, who need support is those Moroccans or you know uh, Iraqis or you know uh, whoever. And in case Donald Trump is listening, um, I believe the research Hajun cited also applies to the United States that <laughs> immigrants are also net contributors in that country as well. So. That's right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah there'll be a uh, quick uh, Twitter storm on this. Yeah. That, uh, <laughs> Um, before I move on to the last question, I know, Max, you had an interjection you wanted to make earlier. Oh, yeah. Well, um, so I'm also wondering in relation to this concept of otherness and mm-hmm. the race discourses that are going on. So to what extent is the welfare state only affordable under a sort of neoliberal system that sort of inherently is predatory on countries in places like Africa, where the imposition of free market policies mm. not only is driving people out from these regions into the West as refugees and whatnot, but is also, you know, cutting public spending, it's privatizing these countries' enterprises, it's really drastically causing in many ways even civil wars in a lot of these places. So what is the relationship there, do you think? Yes, uh, the neoliberal policies uh, in most uh, developing countries, especially in Africa and Latin America, have actually created uh, more problems than they were supposed to solve, you know, because uh, that when they implemented these policies uh, in the 80s and 90s, uh, I mean, they said, oh, this economy is not growing very well, you know, the, we need to sacrifice uh, the equity a bit uh, to accelerate growth and uh, make uh, business prosper, you know, compared to the, the 60s and 70s, uh, the per capita income growth rate in Latin America the fell the, by three quarters from 3.1% uh, per year on average uh, to 0.8% per year during the, the next uh, 30 years. In Africa, the basically growth uh, evaporated. I mean, of course, that uh, in the 1670s, Africa wasn't doing great, but still, I mean, it was uh, the, the growing at you know 1.5 percent or thereabout. I mean, the, between 1980 and 2010, pocket capital income in those 30 years 
grew by 6% on average in Africa. Eh? So mm-hmm. basically there was no growth. Yeah? So yes, I mean, that, that this uh, that, that, uh, end to the growth actually yeah, combined with uh, increasing inequality created conflicts and some societies uh, collapsed and a lot of people uh, migrated uh, outwards. So it's been adding to the problem of uh, the rich countries. But uh, as to whether it, the prosperity in the rich countries is based on exploitation of uh, the poorer countries. This uh, was true, of course, uh, the, during the days of uh, colonialism and imperialism, but it's not even that anymore, you know, that, that these uh, the poor countries are, in relative terms, are so insignificant. Whatever money they st- that the rich countries uh, the, the suck out uh, from those countries, is that uh, really secondary? Huh? Mm. I mean, uh, to put it into perspective, you know, uh, even a fairly large kind of middle-income developing country, say Colombia or South Africa, you know, their economies are the sizes of uh, the Washington State, yeah, mm. Minnesota, you know. So that even if you take everything away from these countries, it's uh, not going to make a huge uh, difference uh, right. to the uh, prosperity in the rich countries. This is, uh, however, not to say that uh, the, the rich countries are not harming the poor countries. Yeah? But uh, uh, what I'm saying is that they, uh, the prosperity of the rich countries do not depend on right. yeah, transferring resources from yeah, those countries. I mean, it did uh, in the old days, but uh, not anymore. Okay. No? It's more about like the ideology rather than the material exactly. economic yeah. exploitation. Yeah, so that's the sad thing because that uh, you know, actually by allowing these developing countries to use uh, policies that are more suitable to their conditions rather than this uh, standard neoliberal policy that may work in uh, some rich countries, but uh, in general uh, are very unsuitable for developing countries. The rich countries are actually harming themselves in the long run because that if you let these countries uh, use policies that are more suitable for them and grow faster, actually the rich countries will have uh, bigger export markets. Yeah, mm. they'll have uh, more investment opportunities. I mean, this is what has been uh, happening with China. You know, China refused to uh, accept this uh, neoliberal big bang policy like uh, Russia did. You know, the Chinese income, uh, as a result, in the last uh, three, four decades, that uh, increased by something like 15 times, you know. So that, uh, you have a much, much bigger market that uh, if you're an American corporation or Danish company, you know. So that, that this is uh, the sad thing. I mean, that rich countries are, because of this ideology, doing something that, that uh, hurts uh, even themselves. Yeah? So taking this uh, conversation back to human uh, rights specifically, mm. Um, I know Talia has been dying to ask the last question regarding universal basic income. Um, Well, I think a great case to illustrate some of the human rights perspectives we've been talking about and the problems of otherness and distributing welfare is this new debate. Well, it's not new, but it's really Mm -hmm. come into very recently about the universal basic income. Switzerland had a referendum on it last year. It was voted down by about 77%. But does the universal basic income represent a way forward for economics and welfare distribution? Hmm, Well, it depends on what version you are talking about because uh, you know universal basic income has a uh, very different versions i mean the, the kind of basic version the promoted by people like friedrich hayek and milton friedman is that you basically get rid of the welfare state 
give people certain uh, basic income and let them deal with it. Yeah? Now, of course, uh, the level they are setting is uh, rather low. I mean, just enough to survive yeah? because uh, these people are worried about so-called work incentive. Yeah? People are going to sit on their asses and you know, do nothing if uh, you give them money. Yeah? Now, if uh, that, some, it's uh, something like that, uh, then, you know, we are rewinding uh, the progress of uh, the last at least uh, 150 years. Yeah? So I'm uh, totally against that version. There are left-wing versions of uh, the universal basic income, uh, and it's uh, really based on a rather libertarian idea because, uh, you know, at the moment, it's not as if uh, the people have basic income. Yeah? In the sense that, you know, that, uh, in any, uh, you know, even including that, that uh, you know, countries like South Korea with a minimal that, uh, welfare state, I mean, uh, in every country, I mean, of course, uh, it's a different story with uh, very poor countries where there's no welfare state to talk about, yeah? But that, uh, as far as you have some welfare state, you have some basic entitlement, yeah? So your kid uh, can go to primary school, yeah? You can go to hospital even if you have to pay some part of the cost and so on. So actually a lot of people have uh, that, uh, this uh, basic entitlement. What uh, the proponents of this uh, basic universal basic income is saying is that you should give a lot of this in cash. Yeah? So let people decide how to spend it. Now then there are two versions. Yeah. So that the one version is that, yeah, we should uh, give everyone a decent level of income, but basically abolish the welfare state. Yeah? and uh, let people deal with it. Yeah? So it's uh, the kind of uh, more generous version of uh, Friedman uh, and Hayek. And for the same reason I that, uh, cited earlier, I don't think uh, that's a good idea. However, that uh, you know, if the argument is to convert a significant part of uh, your basic welfare entitlement into cash, while providing some absolute that, that, that basic uh, welfare that, uh, uh, services, well, that we can debate that, yeah? uh, because that, uh, yes, uh, at the moment, you know, the, the welfare state has been designed on the assumption that, well, you know, certain assumptions uh, that made a lot of sense in the nineteen uh, say forties and fifties, yeah, so. Basically, there'll be one uh, male breadwinner yeah, who will be in full-time employment. He might occasionally lose his job, but that uh, since the uh, economy is growing quite well and uh, there's uh, near full employment, if you give him a bit of uh, the, the cash to tie, tie over the, the difficulty, that he'll be basically back in the, the, to the labor market soon. And people will retire at, 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 at 62, 63, and die before they are 70. Yeah? And, you know, they'll be full-time mom at home, and uh, the, the kids will go to school. The, and, you know, so that uh, these were the assumptions. Yeah? Now, things have changed. Yeah? I mean, now people uh, retire at, at 65, 67, and uh, they live until uh, they are 87. Yeah? So how are you going to pay for that? Yeah? I mean, now the labor markets have become a lot more precarious. So a lot of people have never been in, I mean, that long-time employment. Yeah? I mean, that there may that not be the mom who stays home to take care of kids and that the social services need to provide a lot of childcare and early learning. And so, yes, we need to redesign that. And if that 
making got more choices available by converting more of this into cash transfer rather than transfer in kind like you can go to school but we are not going to give you the you know, equivalent of uh, school money in cash if uh, that's uh, what people are asking then yes uh, i'm not you know uh the, against uh, the idea but you know what we need to be very careful here is uh, that uh, under the title of uh, universal basic income you have everyone from you know hayek to people who are advocating a more kind of updated and flexible version of uh, the existing welfare state. So I think that uh, we uh, have to make it absolutely clear what we actually mean by universal basic income before we debate it. Because, uh, you know, if you don't uh, define it clearly, you might be thinking that you are uh, supporting some kind of progressive yeah, uh, agenda and welfare state at uh, 2.0. <laughs> <laughs> and you end up with that uh, Milton Friedman, yeah? <laughs> <laughs> um, no, if that's uh, what you wanted uh, from the beginning, fine, yeah? yeah. <laughs> but uh, the danger is that you might be buying something thinking it's uh, A and then you might get C, you know? Yeah. It's yeah. amazing that these economic concepts that from an outsider's perspective seem like they'd have one obvious definition, the free market, the universal basic income. When you come at it from a human rights perspective and you look at how it's actually going to affect people, exactly. have so yeah. many divergent That's meanings. Right. Absolutely. It yeah. seems that economics is a much more heterodox endeavor, which I know Dr. Chang's been um, advocating uh, for quite a while now and, and might just be the way to reclaim rights if, if applied correctly. Yes, I mean, uh, unfortunately, economics uh, these days uh, have become, you know, the equivalent of Catholic theology in medieval Europe, you know, it's uh, an ideology that justifies what's going on, you know. I mean, the inequality is high because uh, the, the it has to be, you know, the, uh, we, we have uh, the housing crisis because that's uh, what market tells us uh, is right, you know. Yeah. Of course, uh, the, that is a very particular type of economics, I mean, neoclassical economics, not even that, I mean, it's that uh, sort of neoliberal wing of neoclassical economics, not neo all neoclassical economists that uh, are uh, in favor of free market, you know, just think that uh, Paul Krugman or uh, Joe Stiglitz, yeah? Mm -hmm. But uh, th there are many other schools of economics which should uh, give you very different views on uh, how the economy works and how they can be changed. I cannot go into the details, but Basically, yes, I mean, that, that people need to be, need to be educated in this, you know? Mm -hmm. I mean, it's not that difficult, you know, that, to know the basic insights, you know? And that will give them the confidence to challenge the sort of uh, policymakers and, you know, the so-called establishment and say, well, you have been saying this, you have been saying, I don't know, I mean, that, uh, deregulated uh, financial market is the most uh, efficient way to distribute uh, the investment resources. And uh, how do you explain what happened in 2008? Yeah? Give us some answer. Mm -hmm. yeah? So that, that it's a very important tool for the exercise of uh, citizenship these days because that the economic logic has penetrated so many areas. You know, I mean, uh, in the Say 1950s, you probably could that uh, fairly that that uh, kind of uh, clearly separate economics from education, from family policy, and so now I mean uh, everything is that uh, that uh, uh, run uh, and ha has been redesigned according to this uh, very narrow economic logic. 
uh, the so-called market logic and you know people need to know what this is and that the people need to know what the alternatives are if uh, they are going to exercise uh, their democratic citizen- citizenships in an effective way you know i sometimes joke that being a responsible uh, citizen of a democracy is the most difficult job in the world yeah? <laughs> no because you have to know everything yeah, yeah. no if you're at a medical doctor you're pretty specialized yeah you are specialized on eyes or you know pancreas or But uh, if you're a uh, uh, responsible citizen, you have to have a view on North Korea, you have to have a view on the American healthcare system, you have to have a view on Iraq, Iran, you know, that you have to have a view on uh, China's uh, that, uh, economic policy. You know, so that it is actually that, uh, quite a job, isn't it? Yeah? Mm, that's right. This, this is why a lot of people say, oh, I really don't know, you know, I'm going to withdraw. But this... The disengagement uh, from politics is what's uh, opening doors that, uh, for this that, uh, nasty populist uh, politics because uh, people then begin to react to their most uh, immediate emotions. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Oh, he looks different. You know, mm-hmm. he must be stealing my job. You know. Mm-hmm. No, I mean, uh, yeah. really, I mean that uh, Don- uh, Donald Trump uh, has been lambasting against the Mexicans and the Chinese that uh, for. Uh, destroying American jobs? No, actually, the American financial sector has uh, destroyed far more jobs uh, than the Chinese and the Mexicans. Yeah, and that uh, uh, these are the people who told the American corporations to relocate that uh, to you know uh, cheap wage countries like China and Mexico to give us uh, more profit. Yeah, these are the people who said that uh, no, we are not going to lend uh, you money for anything that uh, long term like uh, R and D. And you'll have to that, that, that do with uh, whatever technology you have. In the meantime, the Swedes, uh, the, the Koreans, and the Finns and the Japanese have been investing in technology, and that's why uh, a lot of American companies have been outcompeted. Yeah? Mm. But you know, <laughs> since that uh, people don't understand these that uh, economic uh, that, uh, issues. They think it's the Mexicans and the Chinese who stole their jobs. Yeah? So to defend their human rights, citizens need economics. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. It's uh, the most important weapon, exactly because it's the weapon that uh, those people who want to diminish uh, human rights are used uh, to kind of reduce uh, human rights. Yeah? Thank you for joining us for another episode of Declarations. We'd love to hear any thoughts and feedback you have about this episode, so please tweet us at DeclarationsPod on Twitter and like us on Facebook at facebook.com slash declarationspodcast if you'd like to contact us. Please subscribe and thank you for tuning in to Declarations. <laughs>